Amen. When we were singing the uh, uh, song Garments of Praise, it, it talked about uh, fixing our eyes on you. And I felt like the Spirit said um, that the eyes of God are also on us. And um, so maybe there's somebody in here, maybe there's some people in here who, who feel like God has turned his back on them, or he doesn't see them, he doesn't see their suffering, he's quiet. I want you to know the eyes of the Father see you. He doesn't miss you. He doesn't ignore you. He understands. So if that's helpful to you, the word of, the word of God to you today. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm Jamie, by the way, uh, one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, it's great to be here with you. Great to see all of you. Welcome to our online community as well. We're so glad you're joining us. Um, we're in the book of Hebrews, and we've been here since uh, just after Labor Day in September, been working our way through the book, and today we're going to finish uh, the book of Hebrews. Uh, we haven't touched every, every chapter, every verse, but uh, we've been working our way through with a specific theme, and the theme has been Jesus is better, Jesus is superior, Jesus is greater than, and that's what we've been kind of following through, and so we're finishing today. What it means is that next Sunday, we're going to have a sort of a one-off Sunday. We're going to uh, focus our attention on mission, particularly overseas mission, and it means the Sunday after the 27th of November, believe it or not, is the first Sunday of Advent. Yes, it's almost here. And so we're going to begin an Advent series on that uh, Sunday, which obviously will take us up to uh, Christmas, which we're looking forward to. Uh, quite often, the Christian faith can be described as an upside-down kingdom. Have you heard that phrase before? An upside-down uh, kingdom. And in so many ways, the call of Christ and the inbreaking kingdom of the Son of God is so opposite to the kingdom or the kingdoms of this world. How our world views the big three, money, sex, and power, are so very different to how the kingdom of God views them. And the kingdom of God doesn't say any of those things are bad, but the way in which the world exploits them and uses them and is obsessed by them is very different to the kingdom of Christ. When Jesus was tempted uh, by the devil in the wilderness, he was being presented with things that the fallen kingdom of the world run after and, and try to grasp and, and, and put so much value on and, and worship things like influence and power and the satisfaction of material needs. The Sermon on the Mount presents an ethic the world doesn't really understand. Jesus, uh, many times through his life, um, presented a, a, a kingdom that was an alternative way, a, a narrow path, a, a path less traveled. Jesus said some really outlandish things sometimes. He said things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if somebody slaps you on the cheek, give him the other cheek. And it, it, it rubs against us in the kingdom of the world in terms of how we feel we should respond or want to respond, or our own sense of justice. It's the upside-down kingdom. It is so different. And so we're going to jump into uh, chapter 13 today of Hebrews, and we're going to see some of that coming out uh, in this chapter. So if you like to follow along in your own Bible, we're in 13, and we're going to read from 9 to 16, those verses. This is what it says. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings, for it is well for the heart to be strengthened by grace, 
but not about regulation, uh, or not by regulations about food, which have not benefited those who observe them. We have an altar from which those who officiate in the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we're looking for the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. God's word to us uh, this morning. So as this letter begins to come to an end, as it gets to sort of the final part of the scroll that the first century church are reading, they'd receive this scroll from the east, as it begins to get to the point where he's going to kind of sign off, the author's going to sort of sign off and sign his name and, and end the letter, it's, it's almost like he comes up with this list of kind of uh, uh, short things he wants to just fire out that he hasn't had a chance to talk about. And we didn't read that part, that's in the first eight verses, but, but, but they're there, and it's, it's almost like, I don't want you to miss these, but I don't really have time to write about all of these things. And so he says things like, let mutual love continue, don't, don't forget to just love each other. He says, be hospitable, by the way, the church needs to be hospitable to each other and hospitable to the world. And in fact, some people have even entertained angels, by the way, he says. Remember those who were in prison. Prison in the first century wasn't like prison here. You didn't get fed in prison. You relied on family members and friends to bring you food. If you didn't, you died. Remember those who were in prison as though you yourself were in prison, he says. Keep the marriage bed pure. In that culture, that wasn't the norm. In our culture, it's increasingly not the norm. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Uh, remember your leaders and imitate them. So it's like this, this firing off of this quick list of things not to forget. And then he gets to another one, but instead of it just being like another quick fire thing and then he signs off, he actually then goes into a little bit more about it and we just read it. And then he signs off at the very end. And he says to them, don't get carried away with strange kinds of teaching. It's better if your hearts are benefited by grace rather than regulations about food. Those regulations, they don't benefit anyone. What's he talking about? Why at the end of the letter does he suddenly start talking about regulations of food and strange teaching and, and whether it benefits and what's he going on about? Well, as we've been working our way through this letter, we've talked a lot about what the likely context is, right? We've said this letter came to people probably in the city of Rome who, who came from Jewish homes and Jewish backgrounds. And what happened is that they had responded affirmatively to the gospel proclamation. They'd come to believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, and they put their faith in him. So they'd responded to the gospel, and they've been caught up with this kind of new religion called the way that later gets called Christianity, but the Christian faith is really, really new, it's really, really small, it's really, really tenuous at this time, and it's trying to find its way in the world against the backdrop of the mightiest empire the world has ever known, the Roman Empire that was thoroughly pagan, didn't have any room for this new faith, but also it had an uneasy relationship with Judaism. 
You see, Judaism had been given a certain amount of religious freedom by the Romans. They're like, okay, they, they, these people riot, they get really upset if we don't let them do that. So we're just going to let them have their religious freedom and just kind of move on. And Caesar probably didn't really care if he'd even heard of the Jesus people, but he probably just thought they were a sect of Judaism. They were kind of caught under that umbrella. But the Jews weren't happy with that. They wanted to distance themselves from people of the way. So all of a sudden, they came out from under the protective arc of Judaism and were now all of a sudden exposed. They weren't really appreciated by the Romans and they weren't appreciated by the Jews and the synagogue. And so here they are, this new thing, this novel thing, perhaps a subversive thing. And the, the churches, the house churches, not just in Rome, but all over, were probably feeling fairly vulnerable, fairly exposed, probably pretty small and weak. And so what happened was the Christians began to get targeted and excluded and persecuted, and they had less economic opportunities. Some of them lost their jobs. And things were just hard, and so the believers were being tempted to turn their back on the faith as they were counting the cost. You know what? I love the Jesus thing, but it's just too hard to be a follower of Jesus. That The cost is just too much. And so they began to do that. And so the whole letter of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. Whatever you do, don't do that. There's nothing for you in the old religion anymore. And the way in which he argues it, argues for it. It just says, look at Jesus. He's so much better than this and this and this. He's superior to this and this and this. And so he argues and argues and argues and warns about what backsliding actually means. And we've seen that over these weeks. So if that's the background, and I'm, I'm fairly convinced that is the background, here in chapter 13, we learn some more detail. Apparently, there were some who were not only counting the cost, but they're also beginning to listen to some strange teaching as well, and particularly regulations about food. Church family, this is probably the clearest picture we have in the entire book of one of the things that was actually happening in this community. It seems like the Jewish background believers were starting to count the cost and, and sort of move away from their faith, move back to synagogue because then their family would embrace them again and they could maybe keep their job and it wouldn't be so hard. It would be easier to do that. And they began to pick up as they started to contemplate returning to synagogue, they started picking up some of their old Jewish ways, Jewish worship practices, Jewish ceremonial meals. In first century Judaism, Jews would partake in all kinds of ceremonial meals, and, uh, and one was called the fellowship meal, and it wasn't just food, it was also a place where the Jewish community would come together in this kind of cultic practice involving the conferring of blessing and the receiving of grace and strength and, and spiritual strength and so on. But all of it was outside of the grace of Jesus, of course. None of that was done uh, connected to Jesus in any way. That's why the writer says those meals haven't benefited anyone. They haven't benefited anyone. They're meaningless outside of Christ. They're clinging to the old religion. They're worshiping in a way that's irrelevant now. And so many Jews of the diaspora, that is the dispersed Jews, the ones who used to live in Jerusalem and Judea but have moved out to all parts of the empire, many of the Jews of the diaspora started to practice ceremonial meals that imitated the meals that were held at the temple. So it'd be a little bit like me feeling, um, feeling homesick and going for fish and chips. 
right? Or, or Canadians overseas who are maybe feeling a bit homesick and someone sends them a care package full of Tim Hortons coffee, right? It's a way to connect yourself with what's familiar, connect yourself with home and make you feel good and connected to your homeland. Okay, it wasn't exactly like that. But, but in a similar sort of a way, off here in Rome, you know, miles and miles and miles away from Jerusalem, they were, they were taking these ceremonial meals to connect themselves to temple and temple life and what it meant to be part of the people uh, from uh, Jerusalem. So, as, um, uh, so, so this is what's happening. So our author says to them, it is great to be strengthened by faith and grace, but you're not going to get that by eating certain foods and keeping regulations and attending cultic meals and all that kind of stuff. And so then he goes on to say in verse 10, we have an altar, we have an altar from which those who officiate in the tent have no right to eat. It's not really clear what that altar is. There wasn't really an altar in, in, in early Christian faith. It's probably a metaphoric altar that represents the death of Jesus and his sacrifice. What is pretty clear is those that officiate the tent are those who are represented by tabernacle and temple, by Judaism, people of the old religion, under the old covenant. And participants of the new covenant, the followers of Jesus, draw spiritual sustenance from his life, death, and resurrection. They eat from the altar, as it were, that is unavailable to unbelievers. And so again, he's arguing for the necessity of maintaining faith in Jesus rather than going back to the old ways. And then he picks up old uh, Day of Atonement imagery again. He says this, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside of the camp. If you've been following along in this series, if you were here a number of weeks ago, you would have heard me say things like, Jesus is better than the high priest. Jesus uh, offers a better covenant. Uh, Jesus entered a, a, a more superior tabernacle. And, and those were three Sundays in a row that I presented those three things. And if, if you remember, I talked about the Day of Atonement and how that kind of fits in and, and, and provides the background too. And, and if, if that's the case, you may remember me talking about how on the Day of Atonement, there were two animals. One was slaughtered, and his blood drained, and the blood was taken into the temple, and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat, and it was sprinkled up the side of the, of the tent. Do you remember that? And then the other one, the other goat, wasn't killed, but was, but was prayed over and confessed over and sent into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Profound images here and, and, and deep meaning. Well, what would happen is uh, the, the, the blood of the animals, that were, the blood of that animal, that was, then the blood was brought into the sanctuary. The body didn't come into the sanctuary. The body was actually carried not just outside of tabernacle, but outside of the camp of Israel, and its body was completely burned up out there. For ancient Israel to be outside the camp was to be outside of the environs of God's people to be outside of the blessing of the covenant people. To be outside of the camp was an unclean place, a place that wasn't where God is. Coming up on the screen for you, Leviticus 16. The bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be taken outside the camp their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be consumed in fire. They're going to be all burned up completely. 
The one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterwards may come back into the camp. So even if you were the unlucky guy or the unlucky guys who had to carry those dead bodies, those carcasses outside of the camp and do that whole burning up piece, I imagine that wasn't like the most sought after job in the world. But even if you were that guy, you still had to purify yourself in certain ways before you were allowed to enter back into the camp because it's unclean out here. It's ritually impure out here. And you need to make sure you're ritually pure before you enter back into the environs of the covenant people and before you can go anywhere near the tabernacle. The place out there defiled you. Verse 12, therefore Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we're looking for a city that is come. Do you see what the author's saying? Are you following? Do you get, do you get what he's saying? Jesus, who, whose blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, metaphorically, died outside the camp. His body was taken outside of the camp with the dead animals. He died in a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Do you know where it was? It was outside the city walls of Jerusalem. He, he wasn't crucified in the city. He was crucified outside on a hill. And from the Romans' perspective, that is how Rome deals with insurrectionists and terrorists and so on. Rome would, would crucify traitors and terrorists outside of city walls as a reminder to everyone and as a warning to everyone that they need to toe the line to not rebel and to hail Caesar. Long, long Roman roads that led up to city gates would sometimes have rows of crucifixes and people hanging on them and people dying in various states of death as people came into the city as a gruesome reminder and a gruesome warning of who has power in the world. And so for the Romans to crucify the king of the Jews outside the city wall was an appropriate thing to do because there's only one king in the world and his name is Caesar. But for the Jewish perspective, the bodies of sacrificial animals were burned outside of the camp so as not to make the community unclean, to maintain that ritual purity. So Jesus is seen here as carrying a curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Carrying uncleanness, being ritually impure. His body is out there where the dead animals would go. And there's truth to that. When Jesus was crucified on Golgotha, he was carrying your sin and mine. He was carrying your uncleanness and mine. He was carrying your ritual impurity and mine. So it was appropriate that he would be outside the city. And he did it to sanctify the people by his own blood. So again, he, his blood is being played off against the backdrop of the Day of Atonement sacrifice. Jesus, the fulfillment, the once-for-all sacrifice, the, the blood shed once and for all is being presented as carrying the uncleanness of the people outside of the camp. And on another level now, in addition to this wonderful theology of Christ's sacrifice, the author is also speaking into the concrete situation of first century church saying, the camp represents the safety of Judaism for you that you're tempted to go back to. But let us then go out to him, outside the camp, and bear the abuse he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we're looking for a city that is to come. 
What he's saying is the safety of the camp, the tabernacle of the old religion, the temple of the old religion, offers temporal safety. Yeah, okay, you, you might not get persecuted as much. You might be able to get your job back. You know, and all of these things, you won't get mocked and persecuted and so on. It offers temporal safety. But given all that I have described about how Jesus is superior to and the fulfillment of and all these things, there is nothing for you in the temporal safety of Judaism of an eternal perspective. The church is so often called to bear up under the struggles of the ages. The church is called to identify with Jesus, and that means walking outside the safety of the camp and bearing the disgrace of Jesus with him. There's nothing in the camp for you. There's nothing in the synagogue or in the empire of the world. We're looking for a city that is to come. What does it profit a man or a woman to inherit the whole world yet forfeit his or her soul? The camp, the old covenant, the empire, riches and comfort, fulfillment in this life, all of it is garbage, all of it's rubbish, says Paul, that I might gain Christ. So it's like a last-ditch effort in the letter to have these believers turn fully to Jesus and away from religion and empire, which may involve suffering, and it may involve the need to endure difficulty because it's better to be outside the camp with Jesus than it is to grip worldly safety and satisfaction that ultimately benefit you nothing. It's very short-sighted. This is another classic upside-down kingdom passage, isn't it? The Christian faith being presented as the opposite of the kingdom to the world, uh, of the world, opposite values, opposite pathways, and all because of the eternal perspective of God. We talked about that at the beginning, the Sermon on the Mount, the temptation of Jesus, the things like love your enemies and all that stuff that he says, it's the upside down kingdom. The Jews thought that Jesus being sacrificed out the camp was a sure sign that he was unholy and he was unclean and he was one of these kind of messianic pretenders, again, that we need to do away with because He's threatening to, to, to wreck what we have here with Rome because we've got some religious freedom. If he comes and stirs up the crowds, then all that's going to happen is we're going to get persecuted and kicked out of our land again. So we just need to make a deal with him to crucify this guy. Like That's what they thought of him. The Jews thought he, this was a sure sign that he was unholy. But in fact, he was perfectly holy. And he suffered to make others holy. He took upon himself the curse of uncleanness so that you might be called clean. Isn't that amazing? The upside down kingdom, the opposite of how Judaism viewed and understood the coming of Messiah. And then the passage closes with this. Through him then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So, so much of the letter has been speaking out against the, the, the kind of like the futility of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, but now he, he turns to a couple of sacrifices that the New Testament people of Jesus can make. There's a couple they can make and should make. The first is a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of the lips that will praise his name, how we speak, how we use our lips, the lips we use to worship him and to thank him, just like we did together earlier. 
Perhaps for this first century community, as for many others throughout history, when we're going through difficult times, coming out of the difficulty and looking at the 30,000-foot perspective helps us. Because when we're just down here and we're just looking at our circumstance, we, we, we recognize how difficult life is and we just feel bad. But when we can actually come at the 30,000-foot perspective and see the eternal purposes of God, and we, we do that through worship and, 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 and honoring the Scriptures and all of those wonderful things, then it changes our perspective. We see things differently. We see things eternally. And the second sacrifice is to do good and share what we have, the sacrifice of good deeds, the serving and loving within the covenant community, meeting each other's needs which not only imitates Christ, the great giver, but it is actually another way in which a community that's under stress and under duress and has been pushed down can actually hold up. When we find ourselves assailed, the way in which we rise above it is by deep connection to God and deep connection to community. God and community. That's how we can move forward and live the upside-down kingdom way. So church family, let me encourage you in a couple of ways. Number one, let's go out to him and meet him outside the camp. It's true that part of our faith is coming to a true understanding of our identity, to know that we are fully loved and adopted and forgiven and all of these things. It's about grace and mercy and peace. And it's about knowing that in Christ we have victory and that we actually have spiritual authority because we're seated at the right-hand side of the Father with Christ as we're in him and he's in us. And all of these wonderful things that are absolutely true, and they are true. But there's also a parallel thread through the scriptures and through Christian theology that reminds us that we're not home yet and that the broken world can do its worst to us. And we've all been touched by that, haven't we? The broken world can really do its worst to us. Part of the call of Christ is to take up our cross and follow him, to learn to die to self and all of those things that shape us into the citizens of this world. And for all of us, we spend so much time out there in the world and much less time really in community and spiritual disciplines and all of those kind of things. So we're already fighting the pervasive influence of the world that has a very loud voice. So let's remember the call to identify with Christ, to develop those kingdom values and live those values out. How hard is it to love your enemy? How hard is it to pray for somebody who's really hurt you? Have you ever done that? Yeah, it's not easy, is it? It takes will and strength and, and, and God. How hard it is to turn the other cheek, et cetera, et cetera. But that's part of the call. That's going out to him. And let's remember the encouragement in the passage to offer sacrifices we can offer. The sacrifice of, of, of praise and giving to and receiving from the community of faith. What does it look like for you in your own life to offer a sacrifice of praise? What does that look like? And it probably doesn't look like everybody else is what does a sacrifice of praise look like for you? And what about the sacrifice of good works to the covenant community, to each other, your brothers and sisters? How could that be worked into your life more? We need each other more than, more than ever. The pandemic has revealed a lot of disconnection and loneliness and has created that as well. 
We need each other more than ever. We need people around us. Matthew, would you come back up with your team, please? And uh, we're going to close out and respond with, um, with worship by music.